Thank you for your singing. It's a great joy to hear the cascade of voices from behind me, the the instrumentalists in front. Can we go one more time briefly uh, to him who crowns our mornings with steadfast love and ends our days with faithfulness? Let's pray. O faithful God, we know that you have ordained preaching and the foolishness of preaching even for the building up of your church, for the advance of your cause, for the growing of our faith. So we pray for grace now as we open your word. Be with us, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as a Puritan, John Owens wrote, or John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that expressly gives us the necessity of mortification as we see it there in the first half of Romans 8 and verse 13. This is a four-week series on the mortification of sin, principally focused on a single verse, Romans 8 and verse 13. And Paul says there to show us the necessity of mortification, if you live according to the flesh, you will die or you are about to die. Some of you know the movie Inception. This is the idea of an inceptive uh, verb, a use of a verb. You are about to die. It's like you say, if you touch that high voltage line, you are about to die. And that's why Paul says in verse 12, so then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And what we saw, and I I pointed this out last week, what Paul contrasts in the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8 is life according to the flesh versus life according to the Spirit. Those who set their minds on the things of the flesh, that brings death. That's the result. There's an equal sign. Life according to the flesh, setting your minds on the flesh equals death. On the other side, life according to the Spirit which looks like life, setting our minds on the Spirit, equals, Paul says, life and death. Something altogether different, very much better. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, 5 and 6, Paul says, I'd like to read it again, just kind of a drilling, pressing this text into us. Very simple. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. There it is. No third option. Life, peace. So this morning our topic is the nature of mortification. How do we actually kill sin? How do we do it? What does it look like? Two weeks ago, we saw the need for if you're living according to the flesh, you will die. And then last week, in three little words, in one powerful phrase, like I love you, we learned the very means, the instrument of mortification by the Spirit. And in fact, as we'll see later, and as Brian Dunlap was teaching us this morning in Sunday school, 
the Spirit, the work of the Spirit is never separated from the sword of the Spirit. Word and Spirit go together. So the Spirit is never moving you and compelling you, compelling you to do something that's contradictory to God's Word, to the Spirit, which is His breathing. So now this week, the nature of mortification. And I want to ask and answer two or three questions this morning, but it's not packaged and sanitized. I'm not going to do this like question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. I'm saying that my message is designed essentially to answer these three questions. What do we mean by nature, by the nature of mortification? Number two, how do we kill sin or what does it look like? And what are the signs that we are making progress in mortification? Now, that prince of English Puritans, John Owen, who said, be killing sin or what? Sin will be killing you. You want to remember that, all right? He gives us three foundational principles for our mortification of sin. I gave these last week. They're worth repeating. First, this is the work of every believer. He says this this way. Believers who are free from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their daily work to mortify the indwelling power of sin. And so if you think, wow, this is for believers. I'm not a believer. I can just tune out for the next 40 minutes. Wrong. Okay, let's get that straight. Our problem, our challenge, our calling as Christians is to put to death that remaining sin or the sin that indwells us, the remaining corruption. You could say that's our problem. But if you're not converted, if you're not in Christ, that too is your very real problem, your nature. You need a new nature. You need a new heart. Everything is not okay, all right? And so kids, or if you think I'm not yet a Christian, actually, rather than simply marking you out as a Christian, what I want to do this morning is to make you hungry for a new heart, to be saved, for God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so in this first foundational principle, Owen is saying believers are free from the condemning power of sin and therefore ought to make it their daily work to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Secondly, he says the Holy Spirit's the only efficient means of mortification. And to quote him, he says it this way, only the Holy Spirit is sufficient for this work. Thirdly, he focuses on the vitality and quality of our Christian life by saying it's largely dependent on our progress right here. This is how he says it. The life, vigor, and comfort of the believer's spiritual life depends much upon this work of mortifying sin. Now, to not live according to the flesh means to positively live according to the, the Spirit. There is no middle earth or no middle ground, right? There's the great divide. This is life and peace here in the Spirit. But death is joined to this new life. To live the Christian life is to daily be involved in killing, in putting to death, in strangling out and reducing to weakness the indwelling sin that remains in us. And when Charles Hodge 
tells us that Paul here is, he's using body in verse 13. When you read the deeds of the body, right? You might have thought he would say something more about flesh. But here he's using this phrase, the deeds of the body, as a metonymy for the old nature. An attribute standing for something larger, like the way we would say a suit, speaking of a a guy in a suit, for a business executive. Or for horse racing, you might use the word track. I'm going to the track, which means you're doing that. And I'm not advocating for horse racing, by the way. Don't put that on me. And so Paul, when speaking of the deeds of the body, he's referring not just to sins we commit, but our remaining sinfulness, the old nature that still has elements of corruption. And the Christian is called to strike really a, just a mortal blow not tepid to the sin that remains inside us. We cannot deny its reality. And sometimes we may affirm the reality of something, but be passive and not do anything about it. But first, let's establish this reality. Christian, I'm speaking to myself as well here, we have sin that remains inside us, in thought, in word, in deed. And so we cannot, we must not remain neutral or passive with respect to this ongoing corruption that remains in us. And the stakes are simply too high. Even carpenters understand this. If they're going to take an expensive piece of trim, let's say that trim of which they have limited quantity, one stick is $50, they say what? Measure twice and cut once. They understand the stakes are high. The stakes, Christian, are so high here when we speak of mortification. And I say, speak to us again, Dr. Owen. What is it that you said? What's your axiom? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so I ask a question this morning. Brothers, sisters, are you daily killing the sin that remains in you out of devotion to Christ out of your union with Christ, and out of the sense of privilege you have in him? Or are you on autopilot? Have you set your Christian life on cruise control, which is a term Jerry Bridges has coined, and you're just passing time? How are you doing? Or are you killing sin? So how do we kill sin? I want to give you seven words as we think about killing sin. If you're taking notes I'd like you to take the words, but largely listen. Sometimes I found, if you're like, I do like to take notes, but sometimes I think I've been better at taking notes about a sermon than I have getting the idea and the truth worked into my soul. So I encourage you, balance that. First word, calling. These are words or phrases, calling. Second, cost. Second is the cost. The third is Christ's accomplishment. And I borrow that from John Murray's little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Third or fourth is Christ's spirit at work within us. Right? And some of you know that a little tidbit about the book of Romans is that before you come to chapter 8, The word spirit, as in the Spirit of God, capital S, is found only three times 
before you get to chapter 8, and then 20 times in the first 30, 31 verses of Romans 8. Paul, like Pentecost, is this inaugural outpouring of the Spirit. I think you can say, in a way, that Romans 18 is the inaugural apostolic outpouring and writing of a theology of the Spirit there. Fourth is Christ's word in you. Sixth, or that's fifth, fifth. I can't even count to seven today, that's rough. That's fifth, Christ's word in you. Sixth is constancy of effort. Constancy of effort. And then lastly, seventh, is this expression, covenantal commitment. So first, calling. Second, cost. Third is Christ's accomplishment for us. Fourth is Christ's spirit at work within us. And Christ's, fifth is Christ's word in you or in us. Sixth is constancy of effort. And then lastly or seventh is the covenantal commitment of our Savior. And we'll treat each of these briefly as we consider how is it we put to death remaining sin. So first, we will kill sin when we embrace the reality, the truth, that mortification is fulfilling the obligation that we have for the privilege of our salvation in Christ Jesus. In other words, privileges were in Christ And that produces, it points to this obligation. It's why Paul says, so then, brothers, we are debtors. You might say it, we have an an obligation, okay? It's the point that Paul's making here in Romans 8, but he also makes it in Colossians 3, 1 through 5. You might turn there for a moment. You don't need to of necessity. But he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. But let me share with you just briefly how J.I. Packer, he boils down mortification to these two things, two elements here from these passages. First from Colossians 3, 1 through 5, he says, our privilege now as Christians, as those who share his risen life, He says, it makes mortification an obligation. It's out of the idea, to whom much is given, much is required. And this is what J.I. Packer says. And I think this is worthy if we can begin to say this to one another. You must be what you are and not what you were. That's Packer. You must be what you are and not what you were. Are you in Christ? Paul says, you are a new creature. And then second from Romans 8, 13, it is necessary, as we speak of mortification, as a means to an end. And this is what he says. It is the way to life, in quotes, spiritual well-being in this world and glory with Christ in the next. It will not earn us life, he says, parentheses, Christ has done that already, but it is a part of the work of faith through which we lay hold and keep hold of Christ's free gift. First, speaking of calling, we will kill sin as we answer the question, how do we kill sin? We will kill sin 
when we embrace that mortification is fulfilling the obligation we have for the privilege of our salvation in Christ Jesus. Please do not make duty a dreaded four-letter word. We only need to honor what God is calling us to do. Second, we want, we must consider the high cost of not mortifying sin. It's evident right in our text. Look at verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. This is what we call a conditional statement of which there are several classes in the New Testament. This is one that's certainty. All right? This is like, this is not like, well, if you invest in the stock market, you'll hit it rich. Like, that's a big, you got to be careful with that, right? Okay. No, this is a certainty. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. To be soberly conscious of the high cost of not mortifying sin is part of the strategy for how we mortify sin. Some of you know I have a special coffee cup named Chip. It's in my office. And Brother Eric now refers to it as Chip from the movie Beauty on the Beast. He, he, it's not even, you know, hey, can I take your coffee cup for you? No, it's can I do this or that with Chip. Chip is valuable to me because I know I'd have to travel back to Suzhou, China to replace it. And so I protect it. I respect it. I normally hold, like, I'm just careful. How are you with mortifying sin? If you're not convinced of the high cost of mortifying sin, it's unlikely you'll really ever give yourselves to it. It's the unacceptably high cost and danger of not mortifying sin, which is what, kids? If you walk according to the Spirit and you set your minds on the things of the Spirit, what's the result? Death. That's an unacceptably high cost. And it's that that the apostle asserts are the direct motives for pressing us to begin killing. I'm sorry. There's no room for pacifists when it comes to mortification of sins, all right? We all need to be hawks with respect to indwelling sin. Don't miss it. Do not sugarcoat this integral truth about your life as a Christian and your pursuit of holiness in Christ Jesus. If the words, you will die, if those words do not scare you this morning, if the fear of the Lord does not cause you to tremble and to drop down to the knees of your heart, if the seriousness of this thing we call mortification, then I beg you to ask God to give it to you. Help, ask him to help you see the very sinfulness of sin. It's blackness. That which required the lifeblood of our Lord Jesus. Ask that you might see that all of the Bible points to a Savior who loves to receive those who come in humility and dependence upon him, those who've reckoned the high cost of not mortifying sin. There's a third word for us this morning, and it's the idea of Christ's accomplishment for us to be mindful of that. 
Remember, he accomplished redemption for us. He loved us so much that he gave himself for us, but not to leave ourselves as we are, right? It's not what you were, but what you are and what he's doing with you. What the Father planned, what the Son accomplished, and what the Spirit applies all matter. To get a whole sense of this covenant of redemption, of that unbreakable chain there of words, even in Romans 8, that it is of necessity, it cannot be anything other than that those whom God foreknew before the foundations of the world, he would unfailingly bring them to glorification. And in the middle of that is you and I putting to death daily by the help of the Spirit and the Spirit's sword, the Word, and the fellowship and help of one another. Sin, that will kill us if it's left unattended. Do you get it? We cannot be neutral and passive about this. Moms and dads, I'm sorry, but the greatest threat to your children is not what's outside of your home. I'm sorry. It's the enemy that lies within. Do not fool yourself. And I don't mean to minimize the culture that's squeezing them into its mold. I'm not minimizing the devil that prowls around like a lion looking for something to devour. It is my heart. It is your heart. It is your children's heart. The needs, the work of the Spirit, and the help of Jesus Christ for the glory of God that will make a difference. It's how we will effectively, daily, and faithfully kill sin. If you fabricate a handmade piece of furniture for me, if you were to have me over and make a lovely meal that's not just good in taste, but beautiful on the plate, If you paint a beautiful piece of art and you frame it and gift it to me, it will be natural for me out of a sense of an appreciation for what you have accomplished to receive those things with gratitude and stewardship in acknowledgement of the gift that they are. And so it is, so it is, brothers and sisters, with all the beauty, with all the sufficiency with all the breadth of the Son's redemption for us, his sheep. And point of fact, our text, Romans 8, is really still in that portion of Paul's letter that we call doctrinal. It's interesting. I'm pressing mortification upon you, and that's not really where we are in the book. That doesn't start till chapter 12 and verse 1. That's where Paul We'll begin that portion. But now, this is his exposition and unpacking of the gospel that is the arm-raised power of God unto salvation. It's not until you get to 12 and verse 1 that he begins to explicitly lay out all the chapters in the multiple lines of the application of the gospel, that like a, like a hot air balloon that has, is tethered down to the basket, and there's all, we're, here we are in the basket, and the gospel that gives us lift has all these lines of application to work, to marriage, our thought life, to our sexuality, to the way we think of money, to the, the, day, the way we think of learning, to our neighbor, culture, ambition, every dimension of our life. 
That begins in 12.1. And that's where we can say this is how he loved us, chapters 1 through 11, with an incomparable love. And now from 12 through 15, before he says goodbye to 25 plus people in chapter 16, this is how we live in response to that love. But first, for mortification and for every aspect of our pursuit of him and holiness, we soak in what he has done for us, what he has accomplished. And to wit, I quote from 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a fourth word, a bullet point, and that is Christ's spirit at work within us. And we will make progress when we are mindful that it is Christ's work, spirit at work within us. Remind yourself, Christian, when you're thinking, I'm not growing, I'm struggling. The road seems hard paved. This is part of how you will put sin to death. You remind yourself that whether or not you feel it, you have received the spirit at your conversion, at regeneration, as a deposit of your inheritance, as an adopted son or daughter of God. Remember, there's no progress with sins indwelling apart from the Spirit's dwelling in us. And we focused on this vital truth last Lord's Day evening. The Spirit of the living God, His person, His presence, His power, His illumination of the Word upon our hearts this is the efficient and sufficient means of our, of our sanctification and our mortification in particular. It's only by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. He is the Holy Spirit. But in celebration, in Paul's packed chapter here, in Romans 8, those first maybe 30 verses or so, through, yes, through verse 30, He celebrates the Spirit. And there, not only is the Holy Spirit, he's the Spirit of life and the Spirit of Christ who gives life to our mortal bodies as he dwells in us. As we read in Zechariah 4, 6, when the Lord appeared to that prophet, he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He is life. He convicts. He helps us cry out to our Father, Romans 8, 15. He helps us in our weakness, Romans 8, 26. He comforts. He enlightens. He reveals. He himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, 8, 26. And even according to the will of God, he is that promised helper, that paraclete that the Lord Jesus laid out in that last week in days of his life there in John 13 through 17. It is he is the spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, who shines the spotlight, not on himself, but on the work and person of the Son of God in all his offices as prophet and priest and king and author of our faith. He produces in you and in me the manifold fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control that reveals 
that you are Christ and he is yours. He has John tells us from John 15, the true vine, and we are the branches that bear fruit. So I have a question on this point. Are you consciously dependent on the Spirit moment by moment to live out the Christian life? For by grace, for, for, for grace, for faith, for love, for fruit, for perseverance, for steadfastness in the hour of temptation, Listen, Christian, the spirit is yours. When Paul says pray without ceasing, let's respond to his invitation. It doesn't matter. You're changing a diaper. You're chopping up vegetables to go in the oven. You're driving to work. You're cutting the yard. You're paying bills online. Take that moment in conscious dependent to say, Spirit, help me reveal the Lord Jesus to me. Produce your fruit in me. Show me Christ. There's a fifth word. There's a fifth word. This word is maybe a little bit not as obvious, but that's the idea of his word being in you. Christ's word is in you. You don't, it's not, if I speak, we, we're very, right, we're very tangible. If I say this water bottle is here on the pulpit, you get that. But as much as that water bottle is there on the pulpit, Christ's word, Christian, is in you. And it's vital to your mortification of the sin that so stubbornly remains in you. Now hear me carefully if you've never thought of it this way. Even Jesus resisted the temptation to enticing sin, though we know from the book of Hebrews, he never succumbed. All right, it was without sin. Even Jesus resisted the temptation to enticing sin, though he never had the need to mortify indwelling sin. How did he do this? By taking the word, the scriptures, encountering the evil one. In his wilderness testing, a famished son answered the devil's temptations to turn stones into bread by this key word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I believe there was a moment in time when his mom and dad took, open a scroll, and they talked about what we now call Deuteronomy 8.3, before it was Deuteronomy 8.3, and he read those words, and it served him at a most critical hour. And we find a parallel in Ephesians 6, 17. The sword of the Spirit is an integral part of the whole armor of God with which Paul urges to clothe ourselves. In fact, I think it's the only offensively oriented weapon. The others are elements of defense, but it is the sword of the Spirit that we're to actively resist the wiles of the evil one to remain standing in the day and the hours of our trials. So listen to this. Christian, if you are regularly taking in God's word, reading it, listening to it, memorizing it, singing it, even decorating your homes with passages of the word, I say you 
or mortifying sin. You are taking God's word and you're making provision with it to deal with mortifying sin, okay? That's what you're doing. And so my question though is, are you conscious that the normal Christian life is this threefold war of resistance? There is no peacetime, I'm sorry to tell you, for the Christian. All your days, they're not seasons of peace, but you're always at war, Christian. You're always in this threefold war of resistance. First, as we see in Ephesians 6, 11, against the cunning schemes of the devil. Secondly, against the unrelenting pressure of the culture around you to imbibe its philosophies, its values, and lies, so to speak, to drink the Kool-Aid. And it's interesting that in Romans 12, Paul, in a sense, begins right there. You can look at that. He says, right? Do not, chapter 12, verse 2, be conformed to this world, but be transformed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. But thirdly, not just the schemes of the devil, not just the unrelenting pressure of the culture, there is an enemy within our own remaining sin. Men, your wife is not your problem. Your biggest problem is you. Wife, mom, your biggest problem is not the terrible twos of your toddler. Your toddler, just like a husband or a wife reveals to a husband or a wife to a husband, just reveals the degree and strength of the remaining sin that dwells within you. Eleventh commandment, don't fool yourself. There remains in us a vestige, a remnant of corruption in dwelling sin, and we're called to fight it to choke it, to not play with it, but to bring it death. I can tell you, I'll pet almost any puppy, but any dog that would make a beeline for any of my granddaughters, there's no in-between. There's no petting. There's only killing. And that would be true for any of the children in this church. That's how we need to be with sin. Now, and we do that with the strength which he supplies Can we do this completely in this life? No, but we can do it appreciably and significantly. The truth is, God sometimes allows us to struggle with remaining sin to humble us, to increase our dependence upon him. That's his goodness. That's his kindness. Another reason is sometimes he lets us struggle with one sin so that he might reveal another area of sin. In fact, it's a strategy of Satan. It's a strategy of Satan kind of to get us so focused on one that we're not dealing with another. We're doing really well praying, but we're not really dealing, do, doing very well with guarding our eyes, for example, as men. Or we're guarding our eyes, but we're not praying. We're not, we're not being gentle in our own home. They're made. There's a sixth word. We'll make progress in mortification when we give a constancy of effort. If we're hot today and cold tomorrow, here today and absent 
tomorrow. Sometimes attentive and focused, but more often apathetic and shrugging our shoulders with what difference will it make? Our progress will be limited, our joy reduced, and our taste of grace and its sweetness greatly diminished. Imagine two teams playing tug of war. It does not matter if for one hour this team All right, let's call this the Lions and that team's the Tigers. If Team Lion is pulling and pulling, but there's great resistance over here. But then for a little while, Team Tiger's really pulling, but they're meeting great resistance from Team Lion. But you know, right in the middle of that rope, there's kind of this thing where you say, if that thing on the rope goes over there, this team wins, or this this team wins. But even after an hour of struggle, as long as resistance is strained, no victory, but no loss, you might say. But if for one moment, Team Lion just says, hey, I got to hit the bathroom, or I got to check my messages, I need to take a quick break, what happens? Team Tiger, total victory, instantly, just like that. We must be constant in our effort. When Paul wrote Titus to say that the grace of God has appeared in the form of the Son, It was to bring salvation for all people. But it was more. It was instructing us, Paul says in Titus 2, 11 through 14. It was instructing us as his people to say no, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, in godly lives in this present age while we're waiting, right? For our blessed hope and and the glorious appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Let me ask this. Let me apply this by way of a question. Could it be that your lack of progress in holiness and your mortification of sin is due to your own inconsistency? Do you show a lot of effort and then you meet resistance and then you quit? Would it be helpful to think about the one who helps you? The only reason we have a proverb that says the righteous falls seven times and still gets up is because God is our Azair. He is our helper. Yeah. Your lack, some of you lack constancy and consistency of effort. You've not applied yourself to the inherent asset that you have in the grace of God to provide you with constant instruction as to what and how to say no and yes to indwellings. And remember, you don't have a drill instructor at Paris Island instructing you. Titus 2 says that God's grace is our gracious instructor. Remember Romans 13, 14. You might turn there just for a moment as we close. We must consciously Look at verse 14. We must consciously clothe ourselves with Christ, putting him on, putting sin off, and making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Kind of like whack-a-mole, this type of thing. We must hit, we must guard, we must resist the very first rising of a sin and say aloud, no, for I've died to sin and I've desired, died to the flesh that I might no longer satisfy its desires. Don't wait. 
Don't procrastinate. And by resisting it, we weaken it. And by weakening it, we functionally kill it. It's strength so diminished that its danger is viscerated and gutted. Do you know how you know that you're making progress in mortifying sin? It's when you begin to resist it. When you say no. When you say no, Christ is better. God's promises are better. His word is better. Life in him, all I've been given, the privilege I have to have been made alive though I was dead in Christ. That's when you know you're making progress. Be patient. Even our own confession of faith speaks of how at times a prevailing sin will have the better for us. Use your means of grace, the word, prayer, fellowship, songs, even times of silence, fasting. There are means. I'm going to challenge us as a church three things with one another, three things. Cultivate a habit of asking others to pray for you. Will you pray for me? I'm really struggling with temptation. Ask for prayer. Be specific. Not just pray for me. But pray for me, like I'm really struggling with a, ne- a negative attitude or this sin. Be specific. Number two, ask for accountability. Say, my door is always open. You, I know you love me, and because I know you love me, when you walk into the door of my heart, I know you've got good intentions. Just ask me, how's it going? Pray, accountability, and then here's the other thing. Bring the word to your brothers and sisters. Instruct one another. Just bring the word. We sing the word. Let's speak the word to one another. Much of the New Testament, our life in the body is essentially reciprocal. Yeah. Don't, like, I, you'll never find me sitting here having a conversation with that wall. Okay? <laughs> Guys, don't be the wall in a conversation. Talk to the other person. (laughs) Open your mouth, have a rational thought, and begin speaking. There's a final thing, and that's the covenantal commitment of our Savior. What more could help us kill sin than when we remember God's covenantal commitment to us in Christ from eternity. Where the Father said, I will elect a people for myself, that they'll be my own kingdom of priests who will worship me, with whom I'll be in relationship. And the Son says, I will give my life, Father, for those whom you have chosen. And the Spirit comes and says, Ah, Father, you have elected them. Ah, Son, you've committed to atone for their sins and give your life for them. I'll apply all that. If you, can, if you will, not disrespectfully, I'll make it happen. I'll give it life. I'll give it, I'll, I'll vivify it. I'll set it into place. God's done this. You may exert effort to kill your sin, brothers and sisters. And here's why. Because he's already doing this for you. Yeah.
He's already promised that those whom he foreknew in Christ before the foundations of the world, he will infallibly bring to glory. You have an elder brother. You have the first fruits of creation in Christ Jesus. And if you're his, he will bring you. And I don't know about you, but I can sure watch a football game when Clemson wins and I already know the outcome. I can watch it with much greater joy if I'm watching it at a point we're behind when I know that we'll eventually win. God is winning for you. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That was how the writer of the book of Hebrews took those words to Joshua and said it to Christians who thought they were having a whole lot more month than money. If God be for us, who can be against us? Where is that ever more true than in those days when we're exhausted at fighting the sin that still remains in us? God's with us. Let's never forget it.